Midwife calling. Hello and welcome to Poplar Opinion, a Call the Midwife podcast, where we are talking about every episode of Call the Midwife one by one without spoilers. Uh, I'm Jan Moffat. I'm Dr. Paul Moffat, not that kind of doctor, and this week we are talking about the seventh episode of season five of Call the Midwife. This episode was directed by Darcia Martin and written by Heidi Thomas. Darcia Martin uh, has directed a fair number of Call the Midwife episodes. We last saw her at the end of season four. She directed the last two episodes of season four. And so the actual last episode we saw was the finale of season four, which was the introduction to uh, uh, thyl- uh, thalidomide, and also was the last time we saw Chummy. Mm. Yep. Um, Heidi Thomas has written lots. Yep. She invented the show. She invented midwives. <laughs> yes, absolutely. She invented midwives. She invented calling things. <laughs> How about let's get into the recap, Paul? She invented putting calling things on TV. Yes, that's exactly it. (laughs) All right, let's get into the recap. We start with our mature Jenny narration about the rituals of Nanata's house as we see Sister Julianne in the chapel, Patsy sneaking out of Delia's room, and Barbara waving to Tom in the early morning. Sister Julianne talks to Sister Mary Cynthia about carrying on despite her attack. She wants to send her to the mother house, but Sister Evangelina has not returned. They discuss her as Sister Monica Joan arrives with a donation of apples. Barbara visits a very pregnant Mrs. Gina Matlin, who is setting up house, but her husband, Leslie, seems uninterested. At the docks, we meet a barge family that live on a boat, and the pregnant mother, Daisy, collapses while winding up the locks. Sister Julienne and Dr. Turner and Sheila discuss the contraceptive pill being available, and Sister Julienne sees the moral implications and is a little upset at their enthusiasm. Patsy and Sister Winifred go to the barges to meet Daisy, who is resistant to their treatment, but is examined anyway. Sister Winifred discovers that her children don't go to school. Tom arrives at Nanatus, and Barbara and Tom kiss and dance. Tom leaves a stain on the wallpaper with his brill cream. At, the, at dinner, the stain is discovered, but Barbara does not reveal where it's from. Sister Julian invites everyone to a seminar on the pill. At the clinic, Daisy arrives, having had another dizzy spell, and is advised to stay in the maternity home for bed rests. She resists, but when they offer to have the children in school, she relents. Finally, Trixie has her weekly AA meeting where she mourns the loss of the fun in mixing drinks for her friends. All right. Um, So the voice over in the intro is about countless tender disciplines in this episode. We'll see as we talk through it. I don't immediately see as uh, strong and compelling a uh, thematic through line represented by the voiceover as I did in the last episode, but Mm -hmm. 
The idea not just of routines, but specifically of disciplines and of discipline as a part of routine is what we're starting off here and that everything, uh, all pleasures have some kind of sacrifice connected to them. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see how that in our, our, I mean, I see a couple of ways, but we'll see in our conversation how much that comes through. Um, I want to, be- like, you said before we started recording that you don't talk much about it, so I want to jump on it immediately, which is the apples. <laughs> yes. Uh, Sister Monica Joan complains about apples on the doorstep, and this is something that you might not uh, bring up in the recap very often, but is constantly... Uh, a thing in this episode. There are apples, there are more apples, there's apples. Sister Monica Joan doesn't like apples, so she's had too many apples. Um, Sister Julianne says she's glad to be spared another marrow. Uh, Do you know what a marrow is? I do, because I looked it up. I looked it up too, uh, but I had never, like a marrow is a vegetable like a zucchini that I don't think I've ever seen. It's kind of, I feel like it's a zucchini when it's gone to like over ripeness or like overgrowing, it, overgrowing yeah. i mean when it's a really really big zucchini or courgette as they call it there yeah we have zucchinis in our yard uh in our garden and the seed packet said pick them when they're young and tender yeah exactly and if not you when don't do that they end up in marrow yep that's what i think i don't think i've ever seen a marrow at least not by that name no it's a british thing um but we have i mean like we'll we'll See it in a moment, I suppose, or not a moment. We'll see it by the end of the episode. But the apples are like, uh, there's some, they have some some thematic significance. That's what I was gonna say. Is there is there significance to the apples in the they keep coming and they're, uh, not always good. There's definitely a thematic significance. I think we should, I think I will have something to say about the apples by the end of the episode. But right now they're just like something that shows up in the context, at the beginning, in the context of like tender disciplines. Things Mm -hmm. that uh, people are expressing their gratitude and it's not always appreciated. And things that come your way is not always uh, what you want. Which brings us a bit to the Macklins. The things that come your way are not always what you wanted. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it doesn't bring us to the Macklins because you haven't talked about that other shoe dropping. Um, but Leslie Macklin does not seem very happy with his pregnant wife. Yeah, and his whole situation, like she's setting up house, uh, Barbara goes to her and comments on how, like, their house is so beautiful, they've set it up so nicely, and she's... Uh, so happy that they got everything on their kind of wedding registry, but it seems like Leslie, her husband, does not care. Yeah. He's like, it's hard in this first couple of scenes, uh, it's not clear whether he's like standoffish or just not much of a talker. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, look ahead in the episode, He's he is... Uh, she also thinks that he's not interested. Yeah, exactly. We'll talk about that, I suppose, as it comes. Do you want to talk a bit about uh, the Blackers? Daisy and the Blackers? Yeah, so this is... Daisy and the Blackers sounds like a... It does sound like a band. <laughs> um, uh, so this is the people who live on a barge, and this uh, 
is re really reminiscent to me of the travelers that they met, the Irish travelers that they met in the a mm -hmm. couple seasons ago or last season or whatever it was. So these are people who were constantly on the go. And so when they, when the women are pregnant, there's no medical help or intervention. And we find out from Daisy that not only is she, uh, does she do this on her? Does she do it without medical intervention? She's delivered all five of her children alone. Yeah, she's and delivered if you them think herself. back like two episodes when we saw the mother giving birth alone and how harrowing that was. Yeah, like presumably for Daisy, it is not as harrowing as that, or she wouldn't like. Yeah, she wouldn't have done it five times. But uh, she. Yeah, so this is not the first itinerant people we have seen on the show. This is something we we come to every once in a while. Um, the travelers uh, with the teacup uh, that they gave to uh, Cynthia. I forgot if she was Sister She was Mary Sister Mary at that yeah. point, yeah. Um, so that, that's the most, like, uh, memorable because it was a whole episode focused on them but it's not the first time we've seen people coming and going and and mm -hmm. traveling people um do you know anything about barges or barge people i didn't really know anything did you look it up yeah and like so i mean it, there's not a whole lot of surprise in the looking it up it's basically what you might think um there is a community in england of people who travel up and down the waterways on narrow uh, houseboats, and they're often called bargies or barge people. They call them bargies on the show. They also call them uh, uh, water gypsies, mm -hmm. which uh, you heard me hesitate because I don't want to use slurs, but I do want to repeat like the terminology of the show. <laughs> yeah. um, and that is an actual thing that they were called and sometimes called themselves. That. I saw a whole article, like, recent article written about Oxford boat people that was, like, lamenting uh, an English tradition that's fading away, that there aren't boat people in the way that there used to be, or that there aren't young boat people the way that there used to be, and it's, like, one of the... It was all about how, like, it's one of the um, real eccentricities of English uh, life that is fading away. Hmm. But it's, at least since the Victorian era uh people on barges just constantly traveling up and down the uh the waterways and what the article i i imagine in the early 20th century it was less or this isn't early anymore i imagine in the 60s it probably wasn't true and what we're seeing isn't as true but what the article said is like in 2023 it's not necessarily cheaper no uh, so they're not like in in 2023 they're not saving money they just are they just want to, mm -hmm. right? Much like van life and that kind of thing. Exactly. I knew my parents when I was a kid. So it was before I was 10 is when we moved away. But we had uh, close family friends who lived on a houseboat in Ottawa. Hmm. Um, and it was a little similar to what I read in the article. And not quite to this. That they, you know, lived on a houseboat because they wanted to. Um, and they were constantly... I mean, I was only less than 10, so there may have been things I misunderstood. But they were uh, in 
constant battles with the bylaws of Ottawa, and they were required by law to keep an apartment so that they had a permanent residence, and they were all resentful about it because they just wanted to live in a houseboat, and I thought it was the coolest thing. Yeah, absolutely. And they, As a kid, that's, like, super cool. Like, their refrigerator, I remember, was just, like, a door in the bottom of the houseboat that uh, was a plastic bag dragging <laughs> in the Ottawa River. <laughs> and that was what they had as a refrigerator, which I, as a kid, thought was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so totally different situation, but I am I'm reminded of uh, people I knew as a kid who lived in a houseboat, mm-hmm. and I thought it was extremely romantic and uh, amazing. Yeah. We used to go swimming in the Ottawa River, which is not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but swim off the houseboat because if you're on a boat and you're a kid, you got to go swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, so Daisy Marguerite, but everyone calls her Daisy. Yeah. Is like very, what we get from her in this whole section and going forward is like, she is unaware of what, uh, the, what medical uh, support there is for her, what what things she can make use of. She doesn't know about uh, stuff, mm-hmm. like the rose syrup, and uh, is that free, is that... And even the school, like, she doesn't uh, know what she is entitled to, which is, again, not the first time we have seen people who, like, oh, I can get this? Yeah, all the NHS stuff and various social programs people are just unaware of and like frankly they are today Mm -hmm. that is not an uncommon thing that people who need those social programs aren't aware that they're entitled to them yeah um anything else you want to say about her at this point she collapses winding up the locks Mm -hmm. which she says later that's you know women's work and how could i you know not be able to do that uh she doesn't she clearly doesn't think of pregnancy as any different than regular life yeah so she clearly in the past has treated her pregnancies like it's just part of life you just do do what you got to do and you don't uh have any issues and it's surprising that she had five children without any issues at all but this sixth child is causing issues and she's told to be on bed rest, which would be uh, such a relief to so many people, but to her, it's the worst possible thing. I don't know if it's the worst possible. She's, like, conflicted, right? She's conflicted. She's deeply conflicted. Because she says, we're always together, we're never apart, and they say, you know, you could just stay here for a couple of days, and your Mm -hmm. husband and kids can visit you anytime, and she's like, well, that sounds okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But she, there's a few other things, like... The this sixth pregnancy is not going well, but when she gets medical intervention, it basically is like there's nothing. It's true. It goes okay. Yeah. I just like there's nothing about it that's remarkably bad. It's just like she doesn't. She's a little anemic and she has low blood pressure and like it's nothing uh, startling. It's nothing upsetting. It's just like a regular uh, pregnancy without any help or support is gets a little hard by number six. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, I want to mention, too, about Lou is the oldest daughter. 
who is a major character as well with along with Daisy and she kind of refers to her as you know my big helper and stuff and she's maybe 11 I think she's referred to yeah. as yep. so she's still quite young to be taking on these big roles and when asked if the kids want to go to school Daisy kind of asks them as if like I know the answer is going to be no do you want to go to school and they all say yes they yeah, do want to go to especially. school and Lou especially yeah like, do you want to do you want to go to school or go help your dad? School. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so have... you can tell that this is a that the parents may choose this way of life, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the children want it. Mm-hmm. And so that's maybe where uh, people like who choose this life may have children who don't because they see the detriments to it, and. Uh, Daisy's illiteracy is never explicitly mentioned in the episode. We yeah. see she's asked to fill out some paperwork and she's like, oh, I don't have my glasses. She's asked, She is handed a piece of paper and she's like, Lou, take this piece of paper. She's very much uh, good at hiding it, but clearly illiterate. And the midwives, the nurses notice it. Yeah. Sheila notices it immediately when she's like, I don't have my glasses. She sees, she clicks in. Mm-hmm. In a way that is smart, and I like that. She clicks in. She doesn't embarrass her about it, though. Yeah. She's like, oh, well, I, well, I can take care of these mm-hmm. uh, details. There, There's a little line where they are speculating whether the daughter is literate. And then, yeah. like, it's a couple of scenes later that's like, oh, no, it's the mother who is illiterate. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe both. It's both. But, um, there's a couple of... Uh, little tiny things going on in this section like we are talking about uh sister evangelina being absent Mm -hmm. um i don't know how much we want to say at this point i don't know what i have to say except that just like the show remembers that sister evangelina isn't here and they remember that sister mary cynthia got attacked last week and there's consequences she's not doing necessarily well she's soldiering on in that kind of keep calm and carry on type of way but sister julianne sees that she should go to the mother house and and uh get some care yeah and quiet reflection but they can't spare her at the moment because sister evangelina has not returned yes and there's some anxiety that like she was supposed to come back they haven't heard from her Mm -hmm. they don't know what's coming, what she's going to do, whether she's coming back. And there's some, like, why would she choose such a harsh life? And Sister Julianne, like, well, maybe it wasn't a choice. Maybe it was a calling. Yeah, exactly. I like the way this show talks, like, has the nuns talk about this in this way that, like, they genuinely believe in their calling they're not just doing this because they want to they feel called and they feel they could be called to different things mm-hmm. and from a secular point of view you might be like well of course they're just choosing this for themselves but they genuinely believe in their calling and i like how this show portrays that it's interesting i didn't see it till you just said it but the uh some might say that the boat people are just choosing that for themselves, mm-hmm. a, a harsh life uh, for themselves and their children, and the nuns are choosing a harsh life for themselves. And we see a bit of, like, I, I don't actually want to pivot to it yet because I want to spend a little time, but we see a little bit of um, Sister Julienne 
choosing a plainer, uh, less extravagant life in the in this mm-hmm. section. Before we get to that, though, the other little thing that is just a scene on its own that I want to talk about a bit is Trixie mm-hmm. in the her AA meeting. Yeah. Um. Why is that scene in this episode? It's yeah. It is. Uh, I think partly with uh, we remember that uh, Sister Mary Cynthia was attacked. We remember Sister Evangelina isn't here. We remember that Trixie is going to AA meetings. We've been talking about it, but we haven't seen it since the very first one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's partly just like connecting things. There's an aspect of this whole episode that I don't know how quite to make sense of thematically, but we're interested in community this episode. Mm. I mean, we always are. Yeah. But, like, um, Sister Evangelina isn't there and they're missing her, and it's not... They talk about needing her help practically, but there's also especially sister, the nuns, especially uh, Sister Monica Joan and Sister Julianne talking about... Sister Evangelina and them just missing her and mm-hmm. wanting her with them. And uh, they have that little conversation where Sister Monica Jones says, you fear what will become of us if she does not return. I fear what will become of her. Mm-hmm. And we see that Sister Monica Joan is like worrying about uh, Sister Evangelina. And there's this sense of like community and people needing each other. And that's also the blackers and, uh, her being in bed rest means leaving her family and she, we're always together. Mm-hmm. And there, there's some of that also in like what Trixie is missing when she gives up alcohol isn't only alcohol. It's um, making a cocktail for people and making a maraschino cherry and people smiling at her when she mixes the drink and she's like waxing poetic, not so much about, you know, drunkenness, but about like, the social aspect of making cocktails as symbolically represented by the maraschino cherries. And she just has like, I think it is here maybe just to connect to this theme of people needing each other and not always getting what they need. Or I don't know. I think think? there's a theme of, also romantic relationships in this episode mm-hmm. with kind of the the thread of the pill going through it but romantic um, okay yeah well so like the tom and barbara are together and patsy and delia are together though no one else knows mm-hmm. so trixie is not not just because of the alcohol she's not having these parties in her room anymore because delia and patsy are hanging out together alone mm-hmm. and tom is go- and barbara is going off with tom and that lee and cynthia has become a nun mm. and that leaves trixie alone in a lot of ways and so she's kind of reflecting on it as you know i'm not having these parties in my room or not having these you know times when i get to mix a drink for everyone but there's an aspect in which she's also being left behind in she doesn't have a romantic relationship. And the people who do, who are around her, used to be her companions and now aren't. Yeah. Exactly. Um, in terms of, like, quick scenes that I don't know uh, how much to make of them yet, you mentioned Patsy and Delia and we see them together. 
Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything more to say at this point about them? Um, just that, like, we've progressed beyond, like, I was hanging out in Delia's room to, like, she's literally sleeping in Delia's room and has to sneak out to hide it. And they are, they're on a razor's edge of being discovered. And yep. what will happen when they, when they get discovered, uh, we'll see. I honestly don't even remember having watched the show. I don't know if or when they get discovered. Well, like, I mean, they're, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's pretty clear in this episode that they are, they can't keep this secret up forever. Exactly, exactly. The way that uh, they shoot, it's partly uh, staging it as Delia and Barbara both have secrets, but it's also as, like, Barbara almost catches Delia. Mm-hmm. And, like, Barbara's secret at this point is not really a secret, but it's like she goes out to see Tom in the first thing in the morning, and it's a little bit, like, you know. Yeah, and then they're making and out. And then, okay, yes. Yeah. Let's get into this. Let's get into that. <laughs> they are making out. You said, like, kissing and dancing, but it's, like, serious making out going on. <laughs> I, the song that plays, so... So Tom comes over when no one else is at Nanata's house, and it's just him and Barbara alone. And then... Which I question, because Sister Monica Joan is always there, and like, True. when is it ever anyone alone in that place? So, yeah, that is a whatever, good point. I, question, I question that it's entirely. It's hard to believe that there's no Sister Monica Joan, that there's no one. Yeah. But anyway, they're, in, they're private in an empty house, and they dance, and the song that they dance to is all about kissing. Um, yeah. The song... Teach Me Tiger was controversial at the time for its sexual suggestiveness. Extremely. <laughs> uh, it seems a little risque for a curate. Yeah. <laughs> the, the like, um, and he like is grabbing her butt and making out. <laughs> okay, okay, Paul, okay. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be shamey, I just mean to be like, uh, it is textual in this episode. We don't get to this, to the kind of uh, second half of that, but per- this uh, episode is about um, sex and and desire and uh, judgment mm-hmm. and uh, restraint and self control and uh, we see like we don't they're not having sex but we we see like Tom and Barbara who we would expect of any of the uh, characters who aren't nuns <laughs> we would expect. Uh, Barbara, who is so innocent and sheltered, to, like, be sheltered and and uh, strict, right? Yep. And we'd expect Tom, who is a curate, <laughs> to be, like... Uh, self-controlled. Self-controlled. We never see Tom and... Tri- we've never saw Tom and Trixie making out We surely this. certainly didn't. And that is a big difference between their relationship and, and Barbara and Tom's relationship. So it's partly because they're the theme of the episode, but it's also partly because of the relationship being different. But I think I'm like making a big deal of it because the show makes a big deal of it. That like they, they have a physical relationship, even if it's not actual sex yet, they have a real physical relationship that we didn't see with Tom and Trixie at all. And that, uh, we might, uh, be surprised by based on the, uh, kind of, tropes of both of their characters yes absolutely so lastly let's get into 
This is the episode with the contraceptive pill. I called it earlier in the season. I didn't even remember that this was the season with it, but it's the 60s and the pill has been approved in America for a while and here it is in Britain available for prescription no matter who you are or your marital status and that is the big deal to Sister Julianne. Yeah. They they have a um meeting and talk about it uh, just after, like, you stopped just before, so that there's another conversation that's really um, everybody laying out their positions, especially, especially Sister Julianne. But this in this section, Dr. Turner is really excited about the pill, and uh, Sister Julianne is not. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like both Sheila and and Dr. Turner are a little bit failing to read her. Yeah. But I like when she says, uh, as Mr. As Mrs. Turner will be aware, like the moral implications of this. And she, you know, is surprised by Sheila's forgetfulness of her, you know, nun days, but, uh, and the, immediately followed by, you know, have a biscuit. Do you have anything plainer? Exactly. And yeah. this is a side of Sister Julianne we don't see very often where she is being, uh, I don't know what the word is, a stickler or more, a little passive aggressive in this moment with her asking for something plainer. But, but that's good. I think like we should yeah. see a fully developed person like Sister Julianne cannot always be you know, our perfect ideal person who agrees with everything that we agree with and disagrees with everything we disagree with. That Yeah. We have, I like, I mean, Sister Julianne in this section, depending on how you want to frame it, she is either, um, has moral and religious convictions that, and is personally troubled by, uh, having to reconcile those with the way the world outside her expects, and particularly with a former nun falling away, which connects... Falling away, but, like, leaving the nunness mm-hmm. and also leaving the moral perspective that she used to share. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially there's little subtext of that, like, Sister Evangelina is also gone. Yeah. Uh, so that we're shedding nuns. And that's the, like, conversation about we need you, Sister Mary Cynthia... Not just as a midwife, but as a nun, because there's not new nuns and we're losing old nuns. Yeah. And so depending on your perspective, this is either Sister Julianne being like, I will give medical help when needed, but I also have convictions of my own that you need to take seriously. Or we could just say she's being very judgmental. (laughs) It's a little of both, I think. Um, I think uh, Sister Julianne has some standout lines in this episode, though. The do you have anything plainer? It stands mm-hmm. out, and then when she comes, when Tom and Barbara are doing their little make out in the living room thing, uh, the rest of the people come home, and Sister Julianne's like, "Oh, Tom, you've joined us for Compline," <laughs> which cracks me up because, like, on one hand, she knows that he's there for for Barbara, but on the other hand, she's giving him an out. <laughs> Is that how you read that? Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, depending the. You could see that scene as she just is... Uh, she just does believe he's there for Conklin. Does Compton, believe he's there for Conklin. Which is probably true. But it is, like, I feel like Tom... This is my other, like, Tom, pretending you're there to pray when you're really there to make out. Yeah, come tut, on. Tut, tut, tut. 
I'm judgmental on this episode <laughs> for the for the sneakiness. Um, All right, should we move on to the next section? Do you have anything more to say? Uh, only that uh, one thing that we didn't uh, really go into about Tom and Barbara is the brill cream on the, the yes, wall. Yeah, the, uh, the we, distinctly masculine scent. <laughs> it's just one of the funny moments is that Sister Monica Joan thinks it's spirit yeah. and there's all this kind of like uh, l- little scene of them trying to figure out what caused that stain on the wall and uh, Barbara plays it so like oh um I well, don't know what it I don't, could be I don't see it it's just a trick of the light oh it is there what could it be oh I have no idea like she's so <laughs> if anyone and, suspected her she would not be pulling it off yeah She'd, exactly it would be so obvious. It's really funny. Yep. All right. All right. Moving on to the next section. At the seminar for the pill, they discuss family planning and putting women in charge. Sister Julianne is concerned with promoting premarital sex, and Barbara later calls Tom out on his hypocrisy for agreeing with her. Gina Matlin goes into labor and struggles with the pain, so Phyllis arrives with more gas, helping deliver their baby boy. Gina says her husband only married her because she was pregnant and doesn't care about the baby. As the two of them leave, Phyllis tells Barbara about her birth out of wedlock and then about sleeping with a soldier before he went to war, using the only method of contraception that they had. Daisy gets hospital clothes and doesn't like that they're stamped as property. Later, Patsy describes how the blacker children didn't like school. The next day, Patsy and Sister Winifred bathe the children and dress them in new clothes, but Daisy is upset and hates the way the children are dressed. She angrily insists on leaving to get back to the barge. Lastly, Delia asks Patsy to go to a club where they can dance together, but Patsy is resistant. This is where your recap's a little shorter, but this is where all the, like, setup of the first part uh, starts to pay off in this Mm -hmm. section. So... Do you want to start with the uh, blackers? Yes. So Daisy, so the children don't have a good time at school because they're made fun of by how they dress and how they probably smell. Although I like the line of uh, lots of children smell. You can tell which children have been housed with baths and which children haven't. But they still look different and are different, and people know that they're bargees or whatever, and that's going to get them teased. Well, and what Patsy says about that you can tell when they're standing in line who has a bathroom and who doesn't, it's like, the blacker children will never have a bathroom. Yeah. Is the next line there. Yeah. That, like, the... They're being made fun of. They're, like, ostracized, and we see... The our characters, the nuns and midwives, are try to be kind and welcoming, but we we see them like even uh, Daisy, even how they treat Daisy is like they try to be kind, but also she's weird to them. Yeah, exactly. And they're ta- gossiping about her, mm-hmm. like those bargees. They're a world in their own, mm-hmm. right? Um, and she's wearing uh. Daisy in the maternity home with the slippers and gown that are stamped with property of the maternity home and she doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where we really have, I think, uh, confirmation if we doubted that uh, she can't read. Yeah. She doesn't know what's been written on the clothes. 
and the like. As I said before, there's there's always was um, uh, internal conflict in the way that Daisy is, well, the way that Daisy plays it, and the way that that we see it is that like she kind of wants to have a nurse, she kind of wants to have bed rest, but she doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. She's like willing to send her kids to school, but she doesn't want them sent to school. Her husband wants her to be safe and and. Uh, have medical care, but she doesn't, isn't entirely happy with all of that. Her husband's mm-hmm. always the one bringing her in, and she, at best, is like, oh, okay. Yeah, right? absolutely. And we see in this section the kids, uh, after Patsy and Sister, Sister Winifred. Winifred, bathe them and dress them and get them all ready for school in what they uh, intend as an act of kindness. Uh, but even before you see Mrs. Blacker's response, like, of course that's not going to go over well. No. Like, they do their best, and we've seen it before on the show, that, like, sometimes it's necessary and they do their best, but people rarely react well to, like, I bathed your children because they smell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like... <sighs> I dressed your children in new clothes because the clothes that you provide for them are terrible. Yeah. Even as a parent myself... It's hard to accept any kind of charity that sometimes even, like, hand-me-downs from a friend can feel like just that little, little inkling of, like, do you think I don't have things for my children? Yeah. Even when it's the most well-intentioned and without any thought like that, sometimes it can be hard to feel like I don't want charity ever. Yeah, how would you feel if someone was like, well, I caught your kids brand new clothes so that they don't have to wear what they were wearing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I would be mad. I'd be a little mad too. Uh, she feels judged. Mm-hmm. She wants her own bed and her own clothes and her own barge and her children dressed like themselves. They tried to turn Lou into a little girl, she says. Yeah. They dressed her like a little girl with all those ribbons. Those aren't going to last a second on the barge. Yeah. And she wants them not smelling like disinfectant. Mm-hmm. Um... So she... Which that's, I feel sad for Lou, because I, I think know. that she doesn't want this. She wants to be a little girl. She's only 11. She, she wants to be, she wanted to go to school, and what Lou is unhappy about is not that she doesn't smell like herself, it's that the other kids are teasing her. And it is also a thing, you know, we've talked about it before, talked about it last episode, it's like, I don't, I think there is a balance in uh, a person's character of, like, do you do everything to avoid getting teased or do you hold fast to who you are? Mm-hmm. But she's 11. Exactly. <laughs> and she isn't, who, like, this isn't a thing she chose for herself and maybe she could just wear a ribbon. Maybe that would be okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but I see Mrs. Blacker's perspective. Yes. So moving on, Gina, we finally see why Gina you know, is upset, why there's some upsetness in the Mac- Natlin's home mm-hmm. is that Gina confesses that, like, he only married me because I got pregnant and I don't think he actually wants this baby. And, of course, that relates back to the pill being available is that if they had had the pill, she wouldn't have gotten pregnant if yeah. she, because they uh, were going to have premarital sex anyway. They should have had they should be able to have some kind of 
contraception. They'd only been courting three months. Yeah, and exactly. he didn't really want me, except in the way that he shouldn't, yeah. she says. Yeah, there you go. Um, and this is a thing that, uh, like, yeah, this is the payoff of Leslie and Gina Madlin, and uh, he, she worries that he doesn't want a kid, and doesn't want her, and doesn't want to be married, and doesn't want the apartment, and doesn't mm-hmm. want anything about the life that he has, that he was forced into it. Um, and... In terms of them, I don't have much more to say about them, really. Yeah, it's except more... Except as it leads into the theme. Yeah, and ex- and then leads to Phyllis's big yes. confession, which I love. <laughs> like, this is more about Phyllis talking about her life and talking about, you know, she confesses again that she was born out of wedlock. So that has come out multiple times, and I like that, like, she didn't say it once, and it got spread around, she's having to tell people individually because no one is talking about it, which is good. Yeah. Really nice that no one's gossiping about that. Barbara, it's this news is, to Barbara. This is news to Barbara. And then also news to Barbara is Phyllis very, very matter-of-factly, in a very Phyllis way, being like, yeah, I slept with a soldier. And then he went off and died in World War II. And you're like, things just click into place about yeah, her. That I've just, and- yeah, an old maid now. Uh, she doesn't quite. She doesn't say like he was the love of my life, and now he's gone. Yeah. Uh, and maybe he wasn't. Yeah. But she does like say, "I had, you know." I'm glad I had this I'm experience. Glad I had this experience. I'm glad we grabbed uh, joy where we could find it, or however exactly she puts it. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad we grabbed happiness when we could. Yeah. Um, also talking about uh, her mother being unmarried, she's like, I don't talk about it often, but suffice it to say, it made its mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes, so the two parts of Phyllis that, like, uh, Pat, um, Barbara talks about, like, isn't it a shame that they were forced to get married, that they had to be married and when they didn't want to be uh isn't that too bad for them that they're now unhappy? Mm-hmm. And Phyllis is like, it's probably better than what my mom had to live through. Yeah, though. exactly. Uh, so there's Phyllis has like the perspective of, you know, a, a little bit of a cold marriage is maybe better than what my mom, what I saw my mom live with. Um, but also, uh, People have sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is Phyllis's like my mom? Yep. What is how exactly does she like in the war? Mo- uh, morals went out the window during the war, but then yeah. they all came back or whatever. Yeah. Um. And then like she talks about herself and like yeah, so I you know <laughs> I wasn't gonna just not uh, find any happiness in my life just because my mother suffered for it, but I was yeah. gonna be careful about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's so... I love Phyllis. Yeah. Um, and it's all connected to, like, and then a scene before we have the conversation about the contraceptive pill with the nurses and the nuns mm-hmm. and uh, Dr. Turner and Tom there for some reason. Because he's the curate, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and Patrick uh, is presenting the pill in... Uh, medical in a medical framework and sister julianne is concerned about a moral framework for it and she says like we don't want to encourage 
recreational sex. Yes. She, like, <laughs> has to take a deep breath to yeah. get that out. Also, uh, and she looks to Tom to back her up. Mm-hmm. And he's like, uh, what's the medical government recommendation? Yeah. <laughs> like, um. He's so out of his depth. I love yes. It. <laughs> My absolute, uh, this is again, Phyllis in this scene. Talking about like family planning and my and uh, but they're teaching them how to use condoms and she's and her like, sorry sister, may I say penis? By all means, <laughs> like oh, so funny. <laughs> and then like by all means the penis. Yeah, like, exactly. Oh, oh, it's so funny, and it is. Go on, sorry, uh, just, finish your thought. The other thing about this scene is Delia saying, you know, like what happened? A couple who is trying not to, but their, you know, passions get the better of them, speaking so interestingly from a different perspective than any of them really know, Mm -hmm. is like, sometimes it's hard to resist when you really love each other. And for her and Patsy, there's no danger of getting pregnant, but they have to sneak around and have to, like, Patsy has to sneak out of Delia's room at, you know, five in the morning or whatever. And it's... uh. The beneath the surface, what's being said is so interesting in this contraception scene. Yes, the because we have yeah, the relationships that are there but are not known are Barbara and Tom and Patsy and Delia, and they all are. I mean, Barbara and Tom's relationship I think is known, but the like Barbara especially is thinking about it differently from how anyone thinks that she is or that mm-hmm. they are. And they're like, there's so much unsaid in this scene, but that the audience knows. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I also think, like, there's a lot I like about this scene and this whole thing. There, It's also like, may I say penis? She's a nurse. Like, of course, like, yeah. <laughs> that, it was really funny, but also like, it's I believe the- that Sister Julienne is uh uncomfortable about um talk like a heart hesitates but like we don't want to encourage recreational sex and doesn't even really want to say it and that she's troubled by the moral perspective i don't like come on she's not a squeamish about uh uh technical medical terms for body parts i know but i think phyllis is trying to be respectful and like this is a conversation about moral things rather than a medical conversation is where it's moved to which is, again, the, like, brings me to another thing going on in this scene that is very... And it's in this episode that, like, is this a medical conversation or is this a moral conversation? Um, and very often on this show, we are... Even the nuns are quite happy to be like, it's a medical conversation, we'll think about it medically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is interesting in this case that, that Sister Julianne's not willing or able to to frame it that way mm-hmm. i think it's good some sometimes that they're like what i do think is interesting about this whole conversation is the only moral trouble that she has is she doesn't want to encourage basically sex outside of marriage but the idea of a pill that can help married women limit mm. the number of children they have, that is something that all of them are on board with because all of them have seen yeah, totally. the trouble with with this the world that they live in and all the children and the unwanted children, etc. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, she doesn't want, like, I mean, this is the other forms of contraception you can't get unless you're married. Mm-hmm. This is explicitly said early on with yeah. Patrick. And one of the things Patrick is so excited about the pill is that women can, single women can be prescribed. The government hasn't restricted who he's allowed to prescribe it to. And it's also very exciting to Patrick and uh, Sheila that uh, it is entirely in the hands of the woman, that mm-hmm. she doesn't have to convince her husband or boyfriend or whatever to do things she can do things um can i just say also a hundred percent effective yeah that's interesting (laughs) thank you for pointing that out because uh listeners in case you are taking your medical advice from a tv show set in the 60s uh, no contraceptive pill is 100% effective. No. I'm no. not that kind of doctor, but I can tell you. Yeah, it's just, like, interesting, like, they're, like, in the scientific world, medical world, like, nothing is 100%. Come on, guys, you know this. And I mean, it's, but I mean, of course, when it first comes out, it's close enough. It's the closest thing they've ever had to yes. 100%, and so they just say 100%, but, yeah, yeah no, it's not 100%. <laughs> it's not 100%. We kind of talked around it and maybe talked about it, but I before we leave this section, want to land one more time on Barbara and Tom's conversation afterwards. Mm-hmm. That Barbara, that Tom is backed in a corner, like clearly by deer in a headlights, backed in a corner. It's one of the things I'm a little bit much like. Come on, uh, uh, Sister Julianne knows what a penis is and isn't upset about t- medical terms for body parts. Tom is like a curate. He's not thrown. He's not totally unexpecting uh, kind of uh, questions about uh, spiritual and moral guidance. Yeah, That's exactly. like literally his career. That's why he's there. So I mean, it's a little bit weird that he's like, what? <laughs> when yeah. she asks him <laughs> to me. But then he's like, it's a medical conversation. I'm, don't, I'm not a doctor um, afterwards. And that Barbara calls him out for being hypocritical for counseling restraint and self-control uh and there's that's also an interesting question because all like um from one perspective they tom and barbara are exercising restraint and self-control if they're mm-hmm. actually having sex like making out is okay yeah <laughs> right exactly um but Barbara feels like they are not exercising self-control and she isn't upset about it. She just didn't... I think the way that that's framed is like, Barbara thinks they're not exercising self-control. She's not uh, expressing guilt about that. She's expressing uh, anger at Tom for being hypocritical. Yeah. That like, we're making out all the time and I'm fine with that. I'm just not fine with you telling other people that they shouldn't, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's all... uh, comes back again like to Phyllis's conversation about like grabbing happiness when you can find it mm-hmm. too. Uh, lastly in this section we have the Delia and Patsy. Oh yes. So uh, Delia knows of a club, a gay club, lesbian club, we don't really know entirely. I guess when they go it's all women. So uh, where they can go and dance and be around other people like them. And Patsy's like, I don't really want to be around other people like us. I want to just be around, like, I love you. Why do, why do I, why does it matter if I'm around other people like us? Yeah. But, 
the like being being free to hold hands and to dance with each other in public is a big deal and and Delia really wants that and so mm-hmm. it's this butting up against you know this is like being caught the societal expectations and their actual desires and everything is and it's i think this scene is important in this episode because i think it's important thematically that the like grab happiness when you find it does not mean have sex with the first person you sort of feel like it mm-hmm. it also means hold hands with your girlfriend when you can yeah exactly right yeah that grabbing happiness doesn't it, the theme of grabbing happiness includes dancing together and mm-hmm. holding hands yeah let's move on to our last section a storm begins in the night and several women go into labor including daisy Lou tries to help Daisy, but instead runs to Nanatus to get a nurse. In the midst of all this, the power goes out, and Timothy is tasked with winding a generator to keep the lights on. Patsy follows Lou to the barge and helps deliver Daisy's daughter. Gina gets a sudden headache and falls ill. Her husband Leslie calls Nanatus for help, and Phyllis arrives, finding that Gina has preeclampsia and Leslie is devoted and doesn't want to leave her even for a moment, proving his dedication. In the morning, the street is impassable, and the telephones are down, but coming over the rubble is Sister Evangelina. She takes charge and requisitions the telephone at a nearby business. She says that she'll ease herself back in, but is also her usual demanding self. Mature Jenny narrates that the Blacklers left and Sister Winifred sent lessons by post, and that Leslie Matlin grew in devotion to his wife and child. Sister Julienne with, talks with Sister Evangelina about her arm, which is clearly curled up. Sister Evangelina reveals that she had a stroke while she was away. She took it as a sign from God to remember to keep learning and finding new ways of doing things. Delia and Patsy end up going to the club and dancing with other, among other women, well, mature Jenny narrates about the brightness of a moment and the sweetness of life. You, uh... I stumble over women. Dancing with other women. No, no. not they go... Okay. Yeah. They're, they're still together. <laughs> with each other. With each other. Around other women. Around other women. <laughs> Just to be clear. It would kind of be a bit of a letdown of their story <laughs> if they go to a club and then find other women. <laughs> the end of their relationship. Yep. Oh. Um... Where do you want to start here? Why uh, I'm going to answer my own question. Why is there a storm? <laughs> what? Because they're on the sea. <laughs> they're, if you're going to deliver a baby in a boat, you have to have a storm. Of course. That's literally the last time we delivered a baby in a boat. There oh, was a storm. There was a storm. <laughs> yeah. There was a big storm. I like, I don't mean why was there a storm, I suppose. But yeah. like, um, there's this moment, as there sometimes is on TV shows, uh, where, like, there's a big storm, there's a power failure, Mrs. Matlin can't see, mm-hmm. uh, Trixie is overwhelmed, Daisy's giving birth alone, everything is bad at once. Yeah, of course, that's what happens. <laughs> um, and the storm is just there to, like, intensify mm-hmm. the drama, but it also is, like, I feel like I could make a little something thematically of the... There's... I don't think completely developed, but there's a minor theme of, like, peace and quiet 
and passion mm-hmm. in conflict through this episode. And I think, I feel like another couple of passes through and they would have made that theme a little stronger, but it's there. There, there are bits of it through mm. the episode and the storm is playing with both of them, I mm-hmm. think. Um, so Mrs. So, uh, sorry, Daisy on the boat in the storm, uh, her husband has to, I don't think we ever know his name, Mr. Blacker, has to take all the kids away, uh, except Lou. Lou. Except Lou, who is there to help. And this is a thing that we've seen Lou with is... Lou, is like, she is, take this, uh, paper away, Lou, come and get me, Lou, you go do, you know, like, she's, and, uh, um... Daisy refers to her as, like, her little right hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's the one who's there to help. And then when things start to go bad for Daisy, she tells her to, like, go get some water. And instead, Lou runs to get uh, Patsy. So I didn't mention it in the recap, but when Patsy arrives, a whole bunch of women are already there. Yeah. And it becomes clear, and I think it really wasn't through the episode, and it's interesting that it becomes clear here that these are all bargy women, but they don't know each other. Yeah. So this is a very different thing than the travelers we see, where it was a very strong community. These are just disparate people on boats. And so possibly in the past, she could have had help from other women on other barges, but they live very separately from each other. Mm-hmm. And in this moment, they kind of promise to like, hey, we're all bargy women. We're all, you know, in this together in a way that apparently they weren't at all in the past, which I found very interesting and very surprising because I would have thought that it, there would be kind of a community of them. But it's, it does make sense that like, they're not a caravan. Mm-hmm. They're not a bunch all in a row. No. They each individually go where they want. And so, they, yeah. And they would be in a little bit of competition with each other to get different jobs because that's why they're traveling is to take cargo different places. Yeah. Yeah. I really found that scene. I'm glad you brought it up now because it's very, it was very interesting. And like, mm. on one hand, we have this little theme of community through the episode and that like even if they're not a community they are a community and the way that like we heard the screaming and we knew what it was and we came we don't know each other but that doesn't mean we're not friends mm-hmm. uh when patsy says i'll leave you with your friends and she says i've never met these women before and the main woman who's helping says that doesn't mean we ain't friends yeah we know your life so we know you yeah exactly um, so Lou's, uh, Daisy's baby is born, and uh, it actually seems to go fairly well in terms of births. There's but... a thing about the pre- the actual birth scene that before we okay. move on about Lou, I just want to say that Patsy's like, should Lou stay with us? Mm. Or maybe the, no, it was the uh, bargy woman is like, this one looks big enough to help. And this is the moment where Daisy says, no, take her to her father. Yeah. She she doesn't have to stay and help. This yeah, is the, like, she doesn't need to be here for this. Lou doesn't have to be grown up, doesn't have to be the midwife, because she uh, Daisy has Patsy to be the nurse, and Lou can go and be a kid. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on with what you are saying. Oh, I was just going to say that the birth actually seems, in terms of called the midwife, fairly straightforward, but the baby has a cord wrapped around its neck, mm-hmm. and therefore would have 
had trouble if it had been, you know, a solo free birth, as some call it. Free uh, birth. Um, and she leaves the cord attached for a while. She mm-hmm. says, you know, this is, you know, a time when I'm still attached to this child. And that, I thought, that's really sweet. And that speaks to the community aspect of my baby and I are, want to be attached just a little longer. It's not bad to be attached to someone, mm-hmm. whatever she says. The, yeah, I loved that moment where, like, the cord is wrapped around the baby's neck and Patsy just moves it and the dialogue doesn't mention it at all. Mm-hmm. The camera just shows it and it they trust us to figure out that if Patsy wasn't there, it would have been a big deal. But because Patsy is there, it's a very small deal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I thought that was, like, very well mm-hmm. framed and done, that Patsy just moves the cord and it's fine. Yeah. Um, Can we mention uh, Timothy... In this episode, I think uh, a big part of this season, by the way, just to say it out loud, is like Timothy, the actor who plays Timothy, whose name I can't recall right now, uh, it kind of becomes a cast member in way more of a way this season. And so they have to kind of have a little scene, more scenes with Timothy. And so this is his scene where he gets to wind the generator and be like, some people's parents have normal jobs. I'm like, you love it. It's a little call. I. It's a little echo of uh, Daisy winding the lock. Mm, yes, exactly. It's women's work. Women's work. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy does the women's work. Right. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, he he does love it, and we see it in the performance. He smiles. And yeah. He's happy, and we see. And we are, we have seen a lot of Timothy reading the Lancet and having medical opinions, and like he clearly is interested in following in his father's footsteps. Yes, exactly. And we see and that he wants even to help. if it's just like winding the generator. He's n- it's not just the the uh, science of medicine that he's interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about the Matlins? Yes. So, uh, spoilers for Downton Abbey. Uh, this is what Sybil had, was preeclampsia after birth. Right. I guess hers was more immediate. Anyway, uh, so she, Gina is suddenly has this headache and these pains and can't see, is seeing spots. And Leslie feels kind of out of his depth. He's being like, no, it's just the light, something. And finally he clues in that like he needs to get help. Mm-hmm. And Phyllis recognizes immediately that this is a serious problem, tries to call for an ambulance, but the phones are kind of cutting off. Mm-hmm. And uh, Leslie is stands, uh, succeeds in crisis. In a crisis, yeah. he is there for her. He is uh, sweet to his wife. He does not want to leave her side, even to like go and wait for the ambulance to make sure they know where to go. He's like, "No, I'm not leaving her, mm-hmm. and I'm not." And like, do we bring the baby? Yep, you bring the baby. Everyone's coming with us. Yeah, it's like. Uh, is this a moment of him uh, rising to the occasion or the occasion, the the crisis reveals his own feelings to himself or both, mm-hmm. but whatever it is, like when the chips are down, he does care about her and yeah. the baby. Yeah. Um, there's a little moment Phyllis calls the ambulance that, and they don't get the address right. And then she tries, she drives over and then she tries to take the elevator up. And I'm like, Phyllis, you can't take the lift in a power outage. Be serious. 
what are you doing? It's the early days of lifts, Paul. Not <laughs> They don't take lifts very often. Hold on. That's why there are signs. When were lifts invented? Okay, no, but I mean, like, <laughs> in this area of London, they're all getting these new buildings. Okay, but, like, Phyllis, I know. come on. Come of on. all people, Phyllis knows <laughs> you can't take an elevator in a power outage. She has her line about, like, it's a good thing you're on the 8th floor and not the 18th. That's me uh, excused from my morning exercises for the week. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, and then, so they're... they're story wraps up fine Gina goes to the hospital and and Phyllis reports back that like she was serious but uh stable and everything's gonna be fine yeah their their story wraps up quite quickly (laughs) like once they're in the hospital everything's okay yeah I'm like preeclampsia is very serious big deal but okay she's fine though in her case it was fine all Mm -hmm. she needed was a husband who loved her yes exactly um there's a little yeah. There's a little more to them that I want to come to in a sec because it wraps everything all up. But but their their story is all happy and ends happily. Mm-hmm. Um, there, a lot of the stories end quite quickly. Um, Blackler's too. It's like she has the baby and then they're leaving. Sister Winifred's going to send them lessons by post and there's like nothing much more they can do because these are people who travel and they're gone. The important thing with the Blackers story the like most important part was her sending Lou off to be a kid yeah I think you're right that was the key moment in their story really I think Mm -hmm. like accepting uh, Patsy's help is very important realizing that uh, the people around her are her friends even if she doesn't know them is important but like Sending Lou off to be a kid instead of her right-hand helper mm-hmm. was, like, that was what their story was really about, I think. Um, I think part of the reason that these two plots wrap up so quickly is because in the end of the episode, Sister Evangelina is back! Oh, and what a what an entrance again. What an entrance. I love it. She's coming over the rubble. She's insulting them because what you guys don't need to remember World War II and Fred like dressed up. Oh, it's and I'm going to go requisition the phone. She does it in like 3 seconds because that's oh, that problem that's solved. That's that problem solved. Like, she reminds me of her very first appearance in the pilot episode yep. that like she comes in like a thunderstorm. She's more of a storm than the storm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a, just a few, like, come on, get some shovels. It's a little bit of rubble in the road. Just move it. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> like, and then when they're, when they're like, they're, well, why? you would have known I was coming if I'd called, if you anyone had answered the phone. Well, the line was blown down in the gale. And what are you doing about it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Love it. I love, love it. I love seeing her again. It is so lovely to see her come in and so uh, herself and so uh, such a force. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love seeing Sister Monica Jones so happy to see her. That's so sweet because as we have mentioned often, Sister Monica Jones and Sister Evangelina have this like bickery relationship, but... Uh, we saw earlier Sister Monica Jones so worried about her, and now Sister Monica Jones, like, so happy to see mm-hmm. her. She quotes Genesis 23, uh, which in context is 
God talking to Jacob the, in the dream of Jacob's ladder, where he saw mm. angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth, and God says, uh, I'll, I'll stay with you. I won't leave you. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Sister Evangelina returning is like God returning. Yeah. In the context of that quotation. And Sister Angelina has that line about, like, you're quoting Genesis instead of Keats. Yeah. <laughs> the storm knocks some sense into you. <laughs> However, Sister Evangelina is not. Yes. She doesn't even mention it. It's wild. That, like, she comes in, she's, like, she's cleaning up the autoclave and insulting the people who aren't cleaning their... The autoclave only sterilizes. It doesn't clean things. It's a machine, not magic. Uh... But she's got this arm that is clearly not useful, and yeah, fine. And Sister Julienne, you know, calls her out, and like, what happened? And so she's had a stroke, she's had to learn how to talk and drink and use her arm again, and all this stuff. And like, and it's uh, and it was a lesson to her to embrace new things and new ideas and new mm. ways of doing things and that is what she went away to learn when things change we have to find a different way mm-hmm. and that ties into the pill and she's she makes comments about the pill as well mm-hmm. and she you know they'll figure out what to do about the pill yeah like they always have because the lesson like I really like, I feel like um, this ending avoids uh, potential preachiness mm-hmm. quite well. because But the implication is that uh, God's guidance to Sister Evangelina and to the nurses, I'm sorry, to Sister Evangelina and to the nuns, God's guidance to them is not be as judgmental as you can and tell everyone what they shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. It's when things change, you find a different way. Yeah. And find a way to live in the world that you're living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is framed not as a medical... I mean, by the end of the episode, that is framed not as a medical necessity, but as a spiritual necessity. Mm-hmm. And I really like that, that it doesn't end up being like, well, you have to choose between your faith and your medicine. But instead, it frames it as God's guidance to you is that you must uh, uh, live in the world that you're in and change when things change as a spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we end the whole episode... We have had the apples all the way through, and we've complaining about the ap- apples, and the apples become thematically, their thematic meaning becomes really clear at the very end of the episode when the apples are little baby Maitland. <laughs> Matlin mm. is an apple. Yeah. That, like, Leslie, uh, with his family, and the voiceover says, not every happiness is chosen. Mm-hmm. Some, like the harvest, simply have to be accepted. And then Sister Evangelina eats an apple. Mm-hmm. D- we don't choose apples. But you got them, so yeah. accept the happinesses that are in front of you. And you can complain about wormy apples being giving you digestion problems, or you can eat an apple. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, like, it's the other side of grab the happiness that you see 
is not just run off with every soldier you see, it is also uh, find happiness with the soldier that you have. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's the same events, but with a different framing. Yeah, absolutely. Find happiness with the apples and the marrows. Mm-hmm. And it is how to find, like, Sister Julienne, I don't want a lemon puff, I want an arrowroot cookie. Um, I think in that moment for Sister Julienne, it was, like, a little judgmental and a little passive-aggressive, but a slight reframing of that is the reason that you want an arrowroot cookie is not to exercise your self-righteousness, but that you can find happiness in the arrowroot cookie and the lemon puff. Mm. (laughs) Right? Yep. When someone offers you a cookie, you find happiness in it. When someone offers you an apple, you find happiness in it, I think is the end of this, Mm. the way that this episode pulls that together and why the apples end up really mattering. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't see how that has to do with the uh, tender disciplines, though, still. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) not quite sure either. (laughs) Um, So is that anything else that you have to say about the episode proper? Uh, That's it for me. What was your favorite part of this episode, Paul? I think my favorite part was Phyllis and uh, Barbara's conversation. Mm -hmm. I loved seeing a little bit more from Phyllis. I loved seeing uh, the way that Phyllis, that that conversation, not just the way that Phyllis has a character, but the way that that uh, conversation kind of um, bridges the past and the future Mm -hmm. uh, in a really good way, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. What was your favorite part? Um, that too, but also Sister Evangelina coming over oh. the rubble. Yeah, hearing... no, that was my favorite part. What <laughs> are they saying? <laughs> hearing her voice before you see her yes. was just beautiful directing because that's what stands out about her yeah. is her is this voice that she does and that she has. And I, you just, like, your heart goes out when you hear that because the the nuns hear it too and they know that she's there and she's being her usual self and i just like that's my favorite part of this episode yeah i take also, mine back that's my favorite part of also this just uh phyllis saying can i say penis sister that <laughs> makes me crack me up so much <laughs> All right, so if you have thoughts on all of this, including, um, I didn't do any research at all into gay clubs in London. No. Or what kind of club the Delia and Patsy would have gone to. I'd love to, if anyone knows more about that than we do, love to hear about it. Please let us know. I feel um, like they said, like, I'm going to get, like, what was it called? It was called, like, the gatekeeping club. Not, was it really? I didn't <laughs> no, even see it all. I don't think it was, but it's, like, I'm getting that That's wrong. That's really funny. I, I should no. look, at, look again at what it was. <laughs> uh Anyway, you can get in touch with us uh, via email, poplar at clockworksacademy.com. You can uh, contact us on our Discord, join the like fun conversation we're having there. That links to that will be in our show notes, as well as links to our Twitter account, at Poplar Opinion. You can find us on Facebook and on other social medias as well. We're always Poplar Opinion when we're not clockworksacademy.com. Uh, you can support everything we do. We would love to have more support. That's uh, on Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast. Uh, anything else that I'm missing, Paul? No, I think you got it. Okay. Thank you very much for listening this week. I have been Paul Moffat. And I've been Jan Moffat. And that's just my popular opinion. Mm-hmm.